Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's Thursday, June uh, 25th. Earlier this week, I recorded a, a wonderful debate about nationalism uh, with the, the great Turkish writer, Elif Shafak. We were on the same side. The motion of the debate uh, was or is nationalism is a force for good. The debate will air for the first time tomorrow, Friday the 26th of June, which I hope you'll all have the chance not only to listen to, but to vote on, ideally for our side. And as a warm-up for the broadcast of the debate itself, which is an Intelligence Squared debate, I have the great honor of, of talking to Elif. Elif, um, without wishing uh, to make you into uh, uh, a pioneer of anti-nationalist argument, why is nationalism not a force for good in your mind? Oh, thank you, Andrew. It's so good to talk to you. And it was such fun. And it was very inspiring to do the debate together, to be on, on the same side. I think it's a very important question and one that will remain with us in the coming years, if not decades. If I may take take you back a little bit in time, you might remember in early 2000s, late 1990s, there was so much optimism in the world. Um, the Berlin Wall had come down, the Soviet Union was no more. And back then, both in academia and media, I remember reading article after article predicting that liberal democracy was the only feasible way, the way forward. And again, the assumptions back then were that nationalism was going to wither away, it was going to lose its power, religions were going to lose their power, and we would all slowly but surely become globally connected and thanks to digital technologies, democratize everywhere. But that didn't happen. I'm afraid the exact opposite is happening at the moment. And one of the reasons why we are where we are is nationalism. And we need to talk about it. So I come from a, a part of the world like the Balkans, Anatolia, the Middle East, the Levant, where for, we've seen how complicated nationalism is and how destructive nationalism is. So I think for us, nationalism is not a theoretical, purely academic or linguistic debate. We've also seen it in action. And I am very critical of nationalism because I think at its heart, it is incredibly divisive, and it always was. Elif, um, let's get our definitions on this one, because as people will hear in the debate itself, it's a slippery term, nationalism. Uh, people use it in different ways, but I think the most compelling arguments really nail nail what the word itself means. And I know your interpretation of nationalism is deeply historical. It's rooted in in, in, in a narrative of a particular ideology. 
True. And I think history matters. We can't, you know, disregard history and have a purely theoretical debate. Otherwise, particularly among political scientists, there is a different, you know, way of um, formulating, like, like, for instance, many scholars like to understandably like to make distinctions between civic nationalism and ethno-nationalism. So different types of nationalism saying one is more positive, the other one is more negative. But my point is, outside academia, when you just step out there on the streets, nationalism is an untamed, wild force, and it can quickly change character. So this is why I think we need to be more alert about the dangers of nationalism, because even when it looks nice and cute and very civilized, it sometimes takes only one political crisis or one economic crisis, financial crisis, for a nice nationalism to turn ugly. I think we need other narratives, other ways of looking at the world, at humanity, at our common humanity, to counterbalance the duality, the polarization that lies at the heart of nationalist ideologies. Elif, uh, everyone will know that you grew up in Turkey, you live in London now, Um, you've had a uh, an interesting history, shall we say, in terms of your relationship with the Turkish state and the idea of Turkish nationalism. How do you separate the personal and the ideological when it comes to nationalism in your life? I think our personal journeys do matter and they do leave an impact on us. So I'm, I'm always actually interested in talking about the personal, cultural, political Uh, At the same time, and I think when you're a storyteller, when you're a novelist, you learn not to put them in completely impermeable boxes. Um, Also, as a feminist, I do know that the personal is also political. But leaving all that aside, maybe I can very briefly share with your listeners. I was um, born in France, in Strasbourg, and the first house that I grew up in was very different. It was full of immigrants, you know, liberal students, um, talking about revolution, social change, social justice. Afterwards, my parents' marriage collapsed and my father stayed in France. My mother brought me to Turkey because for her, it was motherland. For me, it was a new country to discover altogether. And from then onwards, I was raised by two women. And the reason why I'm sharing all this is because life for me has been a little bit nomadic. I had the chance sometimes the challenge of living in different cities, cultures, countries. And maybe there are moments when you feel both like an insider and an outsider. It could be a good position for art. It is a lonely place for the artist. But all I can say is every nation state, at the end of the day, they have their own official version of history. Every nation state comes up with their own filtered, censored, way of reading the past. But where we see a difference is in the quality of democracy. So if if the country is democratic, in that country, you can walk into a bookstore and easily find books that criticize official history or that say, wait a minute, what about that minority story, this minority story? What about forgotten, erased stories? And the writers, the authors of those books are not prosecuted. Whereas in a country like Turkey, where democracy does not exist, it's very difficult also to freely find the narratives that challenge official historiography. So I think it really matters that we have rule of law, freedom of speech, 
pluralism and democracy, these are the values that we should be promoting. Um, Elif, uh, we've had uh, a, a number of uh, very distinguished Turkish writers and thinkers on, on this show before, including Ece Temelkuran and Soli Özel. I know you know them both. Um, uh, Ece in particular has written a book arguing that the the Balkan, if you like, I take that word from you, you used it, the Balkan notion of nationalism, of, of us and them, um, has arrived in the West. It's arrived in the UK where you are with Boris Johnson and Brexit, and particularly in the United States where I am with with Donald Trump. Do you see this kind of reversal of the traditional historical Western Eastern narrative where the uh, the, the, the East European, the Levantine notions of nationalism have now arrived in London and the United States? Mm-hmm. I, I, I find this debate very, very important, vital. If I may um, share this with you, a few years ago I gave a TED talk in which I mentioned until recently, with all the good intentions, Many people in the in the West assumed that some parts of the world were solid lands and some other parts of the world were more liquid. What 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 they meant by that was, you know, it was it was those faraway countries somewhere on the map that were assumed to be more turbulent, unsettled, um, you know, not not yet democratic enough. So, for instance, when I was living in Istanbul, I I remember. A scholar, an American scholar, telling me that it was very understandable for me to be a feminist because, after all, I was living in Turkey in a patriarchal country. But the scholar who said that to me did not seem to assume that you also need feminism in America, you know. So I, I think after 2016, that dualistic way of reading the world has been shattered to pieces. Because with Brexit, with Trump's election, with with the rise of populist nationalistic movements across Europe and many other elements, more and more people have realized, first and foremost, that democracy is much more fragile than we assumed. Um, People have realized, many of us have realized it better, that democracy is hard to achieve but easy to lose. And that history doesn't necessarily go forward always. Sometimes countries slide backwards. And I think if that is the case, again, we women need to be more alert because wherever we've seen a rise in nationalism, religious fundamentalism, populist authoritarianism, we have also seen a rise in sexism, misogyny, and homophobia. It's not a coincidence. They always go hand in hand. So I believe now we understand like we are all living in liquid times and no country is immune to these changes. It can happen anywhere, everywhere. Uh, and that is why we all need to become more engaged citizens, I believe. Uh, actually, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Elif, you, you, you talk about we women. You're, of course, very well known as, I don't know, I hope you don't take this as an insult, a feminist writer. Your last book, 10 Minutes, 36 Seconds in This Strange World, uh, which got shortlisted for the Booker Prize, many other prizes, was, uh, in my mind at least, in some ways, a feminist uh, book. Mm-hmm. Um Is it any coincidence that every nationalist leader in the world today, from Trump and and, and Johnson to to, to Erdogan in in Turkey, to Duterte in the Philippines, to Bolsonaro in Brazil, to Modi in in India, 
uh, to Salvino in Italy, to Orban above all perhaps in Hungary, who's dismantling Hungarian democracy. They're all men. Is there something particularly male about this virulent resurgence, and I mean that in a kind of coronavirus-style manner, this virulent resurgence of the the, the virus of nationalism? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think gender is a big component of this. But rather than, uh, of course, most, most of these populist demagogues, leaders, are male, that's for sure. But it could also be a woman. What I think we need to be focusing on is masculinity. Um, a certain inflated form of masculinity is a big part of the nationalistic discourse. It always was, you know, and that can put a lot of pressure on men as well, particularly on young men. So the the kind of feminism that I believe in, I think, also invites minority men, young men, you know, working class men, men who have been uh, pressurized by that illusion of masculinity, that straitjacket of masculinity that we're, that the system imposes on, on people, the kind of women's movements that is, in my mind, it goes hand in hand also with LGBTQ rights movement, you know, diverse, bringing people on board. But in a nutshell, I can tell you, I think you're very right that it's, this is not a coincidence. It is not a coincidence that in Hungary, Viktor Orban's, one of his first moves, as soon as he consolidated his authoritarian power, one of his first moves was to close, shut down gender and women's studies. You know, I am, me, you know, and, and a couple of others, we were the first students of gender and women's studies in Turkey back then. To me, it's very, very important. I, I you know, I also have been a visiting scholar in gender and women's studies, and, and I find the work done there incredibly precious. So I do understand why Orban doesn't like it. Equally, why in Romania now they're trying to shut down women's studies. Um, you know, in terms of gender rights, women's rights and minority rights, we're seeing country after country going backwards, even places like America that many people thought were solid lands. We've seen in many states with extreme abortion bans. Uh, it's, 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 it's definitely not coincidence or coincidental that gender is a big part of the rise of populist nationalism and populist authoritarianism. Could you imagine a, a, a feminist nationalism? You, you suggested that earlier that it, it's it's not um, it's not impossible for females to be nationalist leaders, um, and it seems as if in the world today, at least, some of the most effective political leadership is is coming from Germany and New Zealand and one or two other countries where which have a female leaders. What do you see ideally as the relationship between? feminism and nationalism? I, I wouldn't want women leaders to, to become nationalists. I, I, I'm very critical of nationalism and I do not see it as a progressive force at all. But have there been female nationalist leaders or figures, public figures in the past? Oh, yes, you know, in country after country. And sometimes they're in order to, tr- to prove how quote-unquote tough they were, They've even been more nationalistic than, than male leaders, which I think is a, is a big mistake. The, my, in my ideal world, uh, I think 
of course, I want to see more women in both local, regional and national politics. Because if I may give you an example, in a country like Turkey, women are very vocal. Women are very visible too, whether it's Kurdish women, small Armenian community, Jewish, Greek or, or Turkish women. But the problem is, and women are not weak or timid, but the problem is there are very few women in politics especially as you move the ladder up, you know, as you, as you climb the ladder up, when it comes to decision-making process, there are no women there. So most of the laws are made by conservative, religious, patriarchal men with a certain worldview, and that changes everything. So women should definitely, we should encourage more women from different backgrounds to enter politics. There's also one more thing. When we look at the corona uh, tunnel that we've all gone, we're all going through at the moment. It's not a coincidence that countries with women leaders, whether it's New Zealand or um, Germany, Scotland, you know, they're they're fared better. They have done a much better job, and I don't think that's coincidence because also countries that have the capacity to choose female leaders are countries where the civil society is more engaged, civil society is stronger, the system is more democratic. It, it really affects how people have responded to the virus. Uh, you described the, the, the coronavirus crisis as a tunnel. We, of course, are talking in June 2020. Uh, Elif, you're a, a deeply historical thinker. How do you think future generations are going to remember 2020? I think we're at a crossroads, at a very critical crossroads. And on the one hand, if we take this path of nationalism, tribalism, isolationism, just deceiving ourselves into thinking that by raising walls, we can be safer. If we're surrounded with sameness, we will be safer. It's an illusion, but unfortunately, an illusion that many demagogues are trying to sell. If we take down that, that road, um, I think the consequences will be very, very destructive I hope we can build more international solidarity, international cooperation. We have to understand one thing. We have major challenges ahead of us, starting with climate emergency. Our planet is burning. We cannot solve global challenges with the forces of nationalism or with the forces of tribalism. So whether it's the climate emergency or another pandemics or the dark side of digital technologies, or cyber terrorism, and many other problems that we have show us that our destinies are interconnected, our stories are interconnected. And I think it's much wiser and healthier for us to understand that, of course, we love our countries, the lands of our ancestors. We we have all of us patriotic feelings. That's beautiful. That's human. But we don't need nationalism to love our roots. What we need at this moment is also to remember that we're citizens of humanity citizens of the world. We have multiple belongings and we need to work together across national borders. This is very convincing, Elif, and of course I'm on your side. We're literally on the same team in the debate. But I think the one weakness in our argument, quote-unquote, is that the the international organizations, the framework, is so weak at the moment. Do we need new international organizations to go up against this resurgent nationalism. After all, the UN in particular seems archaic and riven with political dispute. 
Do we need to rethink the very nature of international organization in the early part of the 21st century? I think we need to rethink everything. Um, and that is why um, with the corona crisis, you know, sometimes people with all the good intentions, they're asking, when are we going to go back to the normal, how things were before the crisis? We're never going to go back to the normal, so, so-called. But in fact, it wasn't normal. What we had, the system we had, was not normal anyhow. And I don't want to go back to that. It was a system full of inequalities, full of injustices. Do we want to revive that? Or do we want to reform, renew, reconstruct our world? That is why this is the end of an era and it is the beginning of something new. It is in our hands to build something better or make it even worse, but it will never be the same. So rather than reviving the existing structure or, or you know, suggesting another kind of globalization that has created so much suffering and inequality, I'm talking about coming up with a new narrative, with a new way of thinking. And it is, let's be realistic here. I think people like us who are critical of nationalism, we're a minority. Because from Modi's India to Bolsonaro's Brazil, um, from Viktor Orban's Hungary to Trump's America or Erdogan's Turkey, it's very clear that the pattern is pro-nationalism. And let us also not forget that, unfortunately, in the aftermath of the virus, of the pandemic, we're going to see massive economic turbulence and unemployment and lots of suffering in that regard as well, which many populist demagogues are going, going to try to exploit. So populist nationalism is not going anywhere. It is, it is going to stay here. But I think as individuals, we have to make a choice. Do I want to contribute to this nationalistic, isolationist, tribalist narrative? Or do I believe that another way of thinking is possible? And that's where I am. And I think another way of thinking is possible. It is possible to construct a much more egalitarian world where we will hopefully learn from the mistakes of the past and not repeat them. Uh, finally, Elif, uh, you're the author of, of 17 books, and everyone, of course, should read those books. You're suggesting that we need another way of thinking. Uh, what should people read? Is there a book um, or perhaps a movie um, or a song that people should watch or listen to or read to trigger that other way of thinking, to, to, to rethink the very nature of nationalism, to convince them? Uh, that nationalism is not a force for good. Of course, they should listen to our debate tomorrow, where you are particularly convincing. Um, but what book in particular do you think is the best antidote to nationalism? You know, in, in my life, I've learned so much from, from books as an author, of course, but also from silences. You know, I like to pay attention to silences. What are the subjects that we find difficult to talk about in a society? Who are the people who have been silenced, disempowered, pushed to the margins, and whose stories have been forgotten or erased? So I think we should definitely keep reading, but keep our reading lists eclectic in the sense that we need to read both fiction and nonfiction. Sometimes I feel sad when, when people say, oh, I only read history, I only read politics, I read the important stuff, you know, I don't have time for novels. And that makes me sad because whether you're a dentist or a designer or an engineer or a teacher or student, there isn't a single human being who doesn't need emotional intelligence. 
And novels do give us emotional intelligence, which I think is very important at this moment in time because we don't know how to deal with our emotions. This is the age of anger, anxiety, fear, apprehension, bitterness, resentment. How do I deal with all these negative emotions? How can I channel them into something more positive, hopefully? And literature does help us with that. But also, I believe listening is, a, is an amazing tool. Just listening to people who come from different backgrounds who might tell you, wait a second, you know, you haven't heard my story yet. And in that regard, stories do matter, I believe, and stories teach us a lot. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.